every person is different and every case is different. And I think cookie cutter treatment needs to go out the window. We need to ask people, tell me what it's like to be you. Hello, welcome to The Seasoned RD, a podcast connecting newer professionals in the field of eating disorders to those of us who have been around for a while. I'm your host, Beth Harrell, a certified eating disorders registered dietitian and supervisor. And I'm Abby Brown, a registered dietitian who is newer to the field. I think of myself as a well-seasoned cast iron skillet with wisdom and experience, yet always ready for something new. And I think of myself as an Instapot with innovation and a fresh perspective. This podcast brings both to the table to share ingredients, recipes, and techniques of past and present so we can all be our best for the future. The kettle is heating up. A skillet is on simmer. So join us around the table for true professional nourishment. Abby, ready to stir the pot? Let's do it. Wow. Before I introduce our amazing guest today, I've been sidetracked and I need to tell you something. This was recorded a bit ago and there's a moment in here that was hard for me to hear. I debated if I should edit it out. Was it a vulnerable moment for me? Yep. Was it a dietitian moment? Maybe. Was it an EDRD moment, an eating disorder registered dietitian moment? Definitely yes. And the only reason I was able to have this moment is because of my guest, Dr. Carrie Anderson. It is easy for me to become kind of mush in her in her care with her vast experience and her huge message of love. So she brings to us her secret sauce and teaches us how to allow our clients a state of safety and a state without fear. And we can create this therapeutic connection and how we're going to get the most out of our care. She gives us tips to do that. She sees in a body a state of fear or a state of love and how if we bring in preconceived ideas because of a diagnosis, that can go awry. So tell me what it's like to be you. Dr. Carrie Anderson is an author, counselor, coach, teacher, and supervisor for those seeking help understanding disordered eating. Having specialized in eating disorder treatment for 30 years, Carrie has positioned herself as a respected clinician and leader in the field. She earned her Doctorate of Behavioral Health at Arizona State University in 2012. She co-authored the acclaimed book and workbook, Eat What You Love, Love What You Eat for Binge Eating, a mindful eating program for healing your relationship with food and your body. And I'm so excited. She released her memoir, Food, Body, and Love. But the greatest of these is love. And I am almost all the way through this book. And I couldn't highly recommend it more. Again, Dr. Anderson is someone who you can reach out to for for individual supervision or if you're working towards your certification supervision or just if you need advice like I ended up needing in this section. Welcome, Dr. Carrie Anderson. We are really excited to have you here with us today. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So just to start off, we have some icebreakers. So my first one for you is mountain or beach? Beach. (laughs) Okay, there we go. (laughs) Do you have a reason for that? That was a quick answer. Oh, you know, I have this place I go to vacation in my mind. 
it's always the beach. One of my favorite beaches is in Hawaii and where I would, I got married to my husband in Hawaii and I had my 10th anniversary in Hawaii. And there's this time on this North shore that the, the waves were so big that it, it was so powerful, these waves coming in, but I had no fear. I just sat on the beach and just breathed it in. Yeah, no, and blue is my favorite color, so. Aw, that's beautiful. I love that. And then my second one for you is breakfast or dinner? It would be dinner. Okay. What's your ideal dinner meal? Oh, wow. My favorite is Thai. Mm. I love a good curry, maybe with shrimp. Mm. I like green curry is my favorite. Mm. Yeah. No, I I sometimes skip breakfast. Don't tell the dietitians on that. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're covering our ears. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah, I love dinner too. I don't know how honestly how I would answer that question. I think I've got both of them, both of them. And then audiobook or paper book? What do you prefer? I like to hold on to the paper. Yeah, I have. I like to hang on to it. And and the other thing is I like to mark up in margins and stuff. And I have I've read some, some of my favorites recently have been audiobook and I hate it because I can't go back. I can't, you know, it's mm-hmm. really hard for me to to revisit it. So if I want to listen to a good story and K okay, audiobook, but I think that and I'm a, you know, I'm a nerd and I'm always reading new research and I have to have I have I have to write in the margins. You have to be able to. And when it's electronic like that, you there's ways that you can bookmark things. But going back to them is just so cumbersome yeah. to me. All right. Well, we are dietitians, Abby and I are. This podcast is for all disciplines who treat eating disorders. New, been around for a while, either way. But I wonder if you could take us back to your, I don't know if it's your licensure exam or what is the big exam for the, your background. Is it a PsyD? Remind me again. I always mess this um, up. I have a doctor of behavioral health, but I got oh, DBH. Yeah. And the DBH I got, at, I turned 50 around the same year I decided to go back. So, but my master's, so actually it's a more recent, right? I got my doctorate. It was a late life decision, but I have been practicing for 30 years as a psychotherapist. My master's was in, gosh, nineteen ninety. One, <laughs> that's hard. <laughs> yeah. So, so then I took a licensing exam after my master's and I ended up in Arizona working at Ramuda Ranch Treatment Center, which is no longer. In fact, a, a, a funny thing, <laughs> and I'm glad I can laugh at it, is all the treatment centers that I have uh, worked for in my life, starting with the Raider Institute in California and then moving to Arizona for Ramuda Ranch. And then I worked for Green Mountain at Fox Run. All of these programs are no longer in existence. So I hope that's not a reflection of me, <laughs> but they, they are no longer around. All the treatment centers I contributed to and, and created programs for. But anyway, I don't think it has anything to do with, with my confidence. I think it's just an interesting fact. Yeah, I agree. I think it's it's common for us to have our hands in lots of different, you know, different buckets. So I would love to know a little bit more about what you did. Remind me of the name Green Mountain. What was that? Green Mountain at Fox Run. I went out there, 
So my, my most recent treatment center that I created the program for and that went out and created an all-women's binge eating program, residential. It was based on a retreat model. And then we had an outpatient clinic that treated the binge eating. So it was a really fantastic program. Unfortunately, the owners decided to retire and, and didn't want to keep it open. You know that all the binge eating programs that have been exclusively for binge eating have now closed. It's a, yeah. a sad thing, but the FitRx in Tennessee closed, then Green Mountain closed, and then the program that ERC had, the Better Program Residential, has also closed. And so it just kind of shows that binge eating disorder is not something that's really supported by insurance, even though that was the intent when they made it, you know, a diagnosis in the DSM in 2013, I think so it could get some equity in terms of treatment, but I don't, I don't think it had. You talked about the different programs for binge eating disorder, and you also mentioned the DSM. And just to make sure that everyone knows what that stands for. Diagnostic Statistical Manual. You got me on one of those days. That's all right. It's a DSM. So it's the manual that therapists and doctors mostly therapists, right, used to diagnose eating disorders and any mental health disorder. Mm -hmm. Any mental health. Any mental health. And the most recent one was the 2013, and that's where binge eating disorder was recognized. It had been something forever, like you said, you know, that it's just recognized in 2013, but you have a story that you'll share with our listeners here in a little bit that it wasn't recognized years ago and how that impacted your work and your personal life. So, okay. So how did you get into the field of eating disorders? I got into the field of eating disorders and with my own recovery, which is a lot of people's story. I was actually a exercise physiologist. I was a athletic director at a women's college in Los Angeles, a small women's college. And I ran the, you know, it was very small women's college. So I ran the PE department, the athletic department and the wellness program. And I saw a lot of eating disorders (laughs) in a women's college in the athletic department. And, and at the same time, I finally got treatment for my binge eating disorder. At the time, it wasn't considered that there wasn't a diagnosis. I actually remember being treated for, at that time, non-purging bulimia. But I was the saddest one on the unit, and I was everybody's worst nightmare. So (laughs) I had an experience of being treated. And at that time, we treated eating disorders with an addiction model. And so I, I transitioned out of that program into the OA program and, and Los An- it was in Los Angeles and Los Angeles was the capital of Overeaters Anonymous. So that's how far we really have come in terms wow. of how I was treated. I mean, and I was put on an exchange program diet, of course, you know, yeah. so, so we know so much more about that, but I went in, I decided that, that I needed to not only be concerned about people's physical health that I needed to be concerned about mental health. And so I I went and got my master's right after that and went right into an internship with an eating disorder treatment center and 
And that is all I've done. I have specialized in eating disorders from the time I got my master's and my license and through to today. And then about 20 years in, I got my doctorate. This is so fascinating because there's a lot, like you mentioned, there's a lot of people who start either in the fitness world or the diet industry and then move into eating disorders work. And then also you talked about the addictions model and and using that for eating disorders. Can you kind of walk us through what was available for you in terms of resources as a clinician back then and, and sort of, I'm going to say, thankfully, um, what we've learned over the time that we can then start from today? Absolutely. Well, I spent five years treating eating disorders in California using the addiction model. And I moved to this wonderful place called Bermuda Ranch in Arizona and became a primary therapist there. I ended up staying 15 years at that program. But one of the things is that that program was so great was its training program. In fact, There are therapists and dietitians all over the United States that were trained through the Remuter Ranch program that I meet today. And we immediately started using cognitive behavioral interventions. The first thing that happened when I got there is that they sent me off to be a trainer, kind of a train the trainer in dialectical behavioral therapy. So I started in 1995 there. Okay. And so uh, that's when DBT was starting to emerge into eating disorder treatment. Pretty soon, everybody was doing it. So that was the first of what we call the mindfulness-based cognitive behavioral therapies. It's considered a third wave cognitive behavioral therapy because it's mindfulness-based. That's what a third wave means. Then what followed, of course, after that is ACT that a lot of people are are using, MBSR, which is the Kabat-Zinn programs. So mindfulness really started you know, much before 95, but that's when things started to hit the eating disorder treatment that we realized that the most evidence-based treatment would be cognitive behavioral. Mm-hmm. Interesting thing about that is as I have, you know, been in the field, we're, we're becoming much more body and somatic focused. Cognitive behavioral therapy, even mindfulness-based cognitive behavioral therapy is very, very effective. But I think what we're finding is that we need to integrate our nervous system and understand the, you know, we, we talk about now interoceptive awareness. We talk about the felt experience, especially when we get into, you know, some of these newer recognized eating disorders like ARFID. I mean, these can be very sensate oriented, even, tra- you know, we have a lot of trauma backgrounds that affect the nervous system and the way that we experience the world in our bodies and how we experience food. So that's really what's so cool now. And and that I was introduced to that when I I got fascinated with neuroscience when I got my doctorate and then have been studying and working in that more of the somatic based approaches to treatment since then. Mm, I'm glad you mentioned ARFID too. And so just to go back, ACT is acceptance commitment therapy. Yes. MBSR, what is that? Mindfulness-based stress reduction. Stress reduction. That's really what's emerged in the medical model. And that John Kabat-Zinn, of course, is the one that started MBSR. And it's really used to treat all kinds of physical problems from pain disorders to sleep disorders to anxiety. It's just the there's a lot of mindfulness based 
you bet. types of treatments. And, and the thing that makes mindfulness-based treatments so powerful is because we have to get our body into a state of calm and not in what we call a hyper aroused state, such as the sympathetic, when the sympathetic nervous system or the fight flight is activated. And we can't make good decisions because we're not using the, the part of our brain that we can make good decisions in when we're in an aroused state. And so mindfulness, the reason it works so well, but at the time that I learned mindfulness, I didn't realize that that's why it works so well. I mean, I think that after, after the fact is I, you know, the, kind of the went backwards into learning of, but then why is it effective? But it really has to do with getting ourselves into a state of calm. Mm-hmm. Wow. And that, you know, you use the term felt awareness. I don't know that I've heard it put that way. I've heard of the interoceptive experiences, but that felt awareness. And that's something that's kind of a theme with some folks that we're interviewing for this podcast too, is really just checking in, seeing what it is. And and if we can't do that within ourselves, it's going to be really hard to see it in our clients. Yeah. You know, part of Stephen Porges' work, and he is the polyvagal theorist, but part of his work was with a woman named Sherry Geller, and she wrote some books on the therapeutic alliance or the, the relationship with the therapeutic relationship. And what, what we're finding is that if the therapist or the provider is not in a calm state, a regulated state, that we can't, we can't engage and connect with our clients because they, we can't co-regulate each other. Mm-hmm. So it's our job as a professional to co-regulate and, and to get our clients calmed down so that they can take in everything that we're working on. Otherwise, if they're in a hyper-aroused state, then they're not connecting to us and they're not feeling safe in, in, in our rooms. And so therefore, we may have lost everything, right? Mm-hmm. For. You know, it's not just teaching skills, right, to our clients. It's actually allowing them to experience the state of safety mm-hmm. and, an exp- and, and a state without fear. And if we can do that, then we can create this therapeutic connection that they're going to get the most out of our care. So do you, how do you help your supervisees see this? Do you have any resources for them? Do you have them read any of the books about how to be a co-regulator in the room? Uh, well, there, there are some good articles and books on, it's called Therapeutic Presence. I'm sorry, Anne. Okay. And so there is some, some good information out there. But I think that what I do is help people to develop their own meditative or mindfulness practice Mm. so that they can tell the different states of their body, right? And know when they're getting into a state of arousal and knowing how to transition. A lot of times we don't, we go back to back to back with our sessions and we don't take time to get ourselves back to baseline Mm -hmm. between sessions. And so just in scheduling, I don't encourage people to do 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock I, with these with these margins of 10, five to 10 minutes. In fact, I schedule all my, I put a 15 minute margin between all of my sessions and I like, 
I do 60 minute sessions. Okay. I don't do these 45, 50 minute sessions. So I do 60 minute sessions. And then what happens is then I always make sure I have full 15 minutes before I start another session because my position of just getting my mindset and getting myself focused on who is coming next. What is it about this person, you know, preparing for this person to come in to my office or to log into Zoom? And so I can be fully present for them. Right, right. Okay, so just a real-time example. Um, You can be prepared for them from what you know. And then just to share, last night I had someone come in and she had attempted suicide the night before. As a dietitian, I did reach out to the therapist in that moment just to inform her, but I'm present for her in that. And and I don't know if you have any advice because it was really just tears. We're not going to be talking about cottage cheese. I mean, you know, we're going to be or anything even related to and and of course, weight. She's a low weight anorexia and already a bit scary with her medical state. And she's been in hospitalized so many times that she's refusing a higher level of care. So as a clinician, as a dietitian in that moment, I wanted to touch her. I wanted to hug her. I've, I've known her for many years. I don't, I didn't, mm-hmm. you know, and I think it's because I've heard teachers are, you know, they'll get in trouble. There's some lawsuits of, you know, I don't know how to be in that situation. I just asked. Mm. And mm-hmm. so touch is really healing. It actually stimulates the oxytocin. Mm-hmm. Any type of touching, even touching ourselves or, you know, having them touch themselves can actually stimulate oxytocin. So, you know, the, the first line would be just exaggerated breath. Mm. I teach my clients how to sigh. I sigh in front of them. Yeah. I make noise. So I just go, oh, right? And then you can regulate their breathing by your breathing. Mm-hmm. And then in terms of just, you know, reaching out and asking, are you okay with a hug? Are you okay with touching? Mm, I love that. Just knowing you're, you know, and they'll tell you. Most mm-hmm. of the time they will. And so, and, and you can watch their body language too. So if they're not congruent, if they say, yeah, and then they, they have this flinch response, then I'm more careful. So okay. my very gentle touch. It's not going to be a big bear hug. So I love that. Gonna, you know, aren't really appropriate either. So I just need touching. Mm-hmm. I, I really appreciate that. And that was my two minutes of supervision with Dr. Carrie Anderson. <laughs> and that brings me to something that you were talking about. So you have a book coming out really soon. Mm-hmm. And um, you have mentioned just earlier in this podcast when we hit record was something about a state without fear. But can you tell us about the title of your book and how love comes into that? Because like the love that I wanted to share with my client, my heart was right with her. I love her. I love her as a human, as a person, as a, a, not as a client. I really just have connected with her. I guess that's the word love I should use, but tell us a little bit more about your book. 
Yeah, I'm so excited. This has just been a long process, but I'm so pleased with the results. I'm very excited about it. It'll come out in the end of June, early July. The book is called Food, Body, and Love, but the greatest of these is love. And what it is is a memoir of my own journey from binge eating disorder as a teen in the 70s, and there it was just failed dieting. Right there, we had absolutely no name for this at at the time, and so it talks about my journey, both in my own experience and my recovery, but even more about my thirty years as an eating disorder practitioner, and about how the field has changed so much. Right from the addiction model to the cognitive behavioral to now more neuroscience body oriented. And how I learned through the changing of the field and moving and changing myself and my techniques as I moved these through these 30 years, how I came to understand really in my own knowing of why I had an eating disorder as a child and how I ultimately healed. And so this is really a combination about healing eating disorders, but also about how, and I call the greatest of these is love. And the reason is, is that I believe that love is actually a state of, is the lack of fear. So I see the body either in a state of fear or the body in a state of love. And I talk about how we create states of love through from a polyvagal theory perspective or a lens, that would be the ventral vagal state the state that the body wants to be in. And we were actually created or the design of the human body or all mammals is for us to regulate our nervous systems through connection and through love of others. We know that when we have these safe connections and we're not in a state of fear, that we are our best selves. That, that's what the whole book really is about, is moving from a state of fear, which I was as a child, had some, some traumatic experiences. You know, I call them mini traumas. Everybody has their own. And how my nervous system was altered as a result of that and how I used food as a way to regulate my nervous system to the point where that attachment was so strong that I was relationship avoidant. And it talks about in my own healing process in my life of how I finally was opened up to relationships and letting people in and letting love in and ultimately letting God love me. And so there is a spiritual thread through that. Mm. So that's, that's what the book's about. So at the time of this recording, it's not been released and you have on your website, if you sign up for the pre-information, there's little tip treats along the way, but this probably won't roll out until your book is already available. So, but we want to make sure that we connect everyone with you and with your book and when it comes out, because I was thinking as you were talking, Carrie, Mm -hmm. I want that one in paper. There are definitely ones I like audiobook or Kindle and that one I want to be writing in the margins and I want to be going back into these, the polyvagal theories and the things that you've learned that you're so greatly putting in this one-stop place for us to learn. Oh my gosh, I can't wait for it to come out. Yeah, I'm excited about it. So it will be available on Amazon and so they'll all have 
you know, if, if this is when the podcast cast comes out, they'll be able to go to that. Or you can go to my website and be able to, to find the book as well. My website is really easy. Let's hear it. <laughs> MyEatingDoctor.com. And I spell out doctor. So M-Y-E-A-T-I-N-G-D-O-C-T-O-R.com. And then the, I also have a web page for my book, Food, Body, and Love.com. This is great. We're going to include those in the show notes, mm-hmm. regardless of when this actually rolls out, because we haven't rolled this out at the time of this recording, the, the podcast, we're ready and it will be coming out hopefully very soon. And so whenever your episode airs, if you're listening to this, you can either go and, and log in and get some of that pre-information or go ahead and buy the book. And what an amazing perspective you have. And we're so grateful that you were willing to share that to all of us. I think so many people could relate to your memoir, but I'm also envisioning that it could be a great resource for other professionals who just want to learn about, well, what is binge eating disorder really like? Maybe they have a client or a patient or somebody and they can't really relate. Well, they could read your book type of deal. So really amazing that you were willing to to share that story. It sounds great. I can't wait to read it. (laughs) Right. You know, I have my readers, my beta readers and whatnot, and they just go, Oh, you're so brave to share all that. (laughs) I'm like, Oh, (laughs) well, Carrie, this is what also, I don't know when you first started in the field, but we weren't really supposed to talk about our own past, Mm -hmm. but, but when we find that people share their stories, that really adds that layer. Yeah. When I first started in the field, I was, I was told by my supervisor to not let anybody know, absolutely not, that I haven't eating, had an eating disorder. So that was really the trend. But I think that people like Carolyn Costin and some others that have kind of paved the road for those of us that are wounded healers and, and are professionals in the field. And so I think it's much more recognized and and okay. I think it's been my secret sauce. (laughs) I I really believe. And that's why all the stories throughout the years that I've told my clients are in the book. And so I think that it's worked for me. And that's kind of my, that's my thing. So so speaking of, you mentioned your supervisor, but you are a supervisor now. How did you get into, into that? Well, I became, I moved, you know, and it happens, right? When you work in treatment centers, I moved up into clinical director pretty quickly in in the field. And so then I became supervising others. And so, you know, I've been, I've actually been a supervisor for 20 years. Wow. I also see my own clients, which is, I think it's really important. I think Uh there was a time where I wasn't seeing clients that I was just training and supervising, but I, I love it now that in private practice, I, see, I have my own caseloads and about a third, oh, oh, maybe even more than a third of, of my work is supervision. Right now, are you, since you've been a supervisor for 20 years, what are the trends like right now? Are they very different from when you first started or is it pretty similar? What What's the trends now? The trend, and could you just clarify, sorry, So I guess with your supervisees, is there a common thing that you find you guys are talking about? 
specific to eating disorders too, because I want to make sure that the there's supervision for licensure when it comes to therapists, mm. and then there's supervision just like I still reach out for supervision, even though I'm also a a supervisor, still reach out for consultation and supervision with others. It's professional growth process. So I'm both a, I'm a state supervisor. So I've got, I've got people in private practice getting their, their licenses here in Arizona. At the same time, I'm a SEDS supervisor and, and that's really just consultation and do case consultation. I think that the trends now in supervision, you know, our field, unfortunately, is, is becoming somewhat split in some, some ide- ideologies. And I think that I really have this goal of trying to bridge this, that we're really, it's not so kind of like in our society, it's not so dichotomous. It's not, we don't need to be so polarized is that we, those of us that have been in the field for a really long time have a lot to offer as well as the, the new folks coming up. And I think that we need to find a common ground and I'm really distraught sometimes at the divisiveness. And so that's my goal is try to help. So I try to You know, I love working with some of the new, you know, up and coming and newer clinicians in the field. I'm trying to create a relational approach to trying to tell me what, you know, some of your new ideologies. And this is kind of where I'm coming from, too. But that's the thing I think that scares me the most in the eating disorder field right now is is the lack of, you know, the kind of like opinions that become divisive. Mm. Yeah, for sure. And we want to honor, we want to honor people's what's on their heart. Mm -hmm. And we also, at the end of the day, need to serve our clients Mm -hmm. and whatever, whatever they're coming to us for and whatever their history has been, whatever their past has been. So really, really tough, tough times. Yeah. Trying to create bridges and relationships and and common ground. Mm-hmm. I love that. Thank you. As we're wrapping things up now, I do have a question. It's loaded. And so if you need to take a second <laughs> to answer this, I totally understand. But taking yourself back to entering this field of eating disorders, what do you wish you would have known then that you do know now? She said it was loaded. And it is because <laughs> she asked me the same thing and it took me forever. I think that I thought I knew because I was quote an expert of eating disorders. I thought I knew people. Mm. What I've learned is that we can't bring in our preconceived ideas of eating disorders just because they have a diagnosis. Well, anorexics quote are this way bulimics are this way and binge, you know, Mm. every person is different and every case is different. And I think cookie cutter treatment needs to go out the window. Of course, it creates sanity in a treatment center setting because you've got structure. But I think we need to ask people, tell me what it's like to be you. Mm. I love it. Tell me, you use your eating disorder. How does it work for you? Yeah. Yeah. Because I think that 
eating disorders, even though we like to categorize them, I think they're very different from one to another. You know, and I've said this for myself, just because we're dietitians and we can't diagnose, it's not part of our scope of practice, is that when people call me for help, I don't have to, I don't have to categorize them. I get to hear what is on their heart, what's, what's been the chatter that's in their head about their food, their eating, their weight. And when we talk about relationships to food, we almost always end up talking about relationships to everything else in, in life, which is why therapist is so important on the team. It's not just about a meal plan by far. And I can only go so far with, with the food therapy, nutrition therapy, and then adjunct that with the interoceptive and the interpersonal skills and, and all of the ACC, DBT things that what that, that therapist is going to handpick for that client, no cookie cutter treatment. It needs to go. We are humans together in that space. Yeah. Mm, thank you so much. And Carrie, where, where can we find you? You mentioned your website again, but how can listeners get a hold of you? Yeah. You know, I mean, that's my, I've got contact forms, of course, on my, on my website, but you know, I love getting emails from, I'm really good about cleaning it out so that I learned something called inbox zero. (laughs) Tell me about it, please. (laughs) (laughs) But I do like to get, you know, when I do a presentation or a podcast or something, I like to get feedback. I like questions and stuff. So people can email me. And my email is Carrie, K-A-R-I at myeatingdoctor.com. Wow. That's awesome that they can connect with you directly through that. It's that, oh, amazing. Thank you so much. We are going to have to have you back after your book is out and whenever anything else rolls out and you are in Arizona. So you can do supervision also for eating disorders professionals around the world. And you do, you have, I've got a couple international supervisees for SEDS right now. And so, yeah, I supervise people for eating disorders all over, Mm -hmm. all over the country and whatnot. And I'm also licensed in Vermont. So I'm licensed in Arizona and Vermont, although for said supervision, it doesn't Doesn't matter. matter. And SEDS for anyone who may be saying, I heard her say that earlier today, it's certified eating disorder specialist. So that's for a certification. And so we want to be clear too, that supervision or consultation doesn't have to be for certification. It definitely can be, and it is required. And there's quite a bit of effort to get that certification. But if If you have a client with binge eating disorder and you feel like a fish out of water, can they reach out to you? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And so sometimes I just get a a one-off. Sometimes people just want to hire me for consultation. And so I I do that, you know, and, you know, if I, if if it's just a 10 minute conversation, you know, I don't ever charge for that, Mm. but because it is part of my business, if it's going to be at any length of time and they want to really pick my brain, then, you know, and I also am hired for, you know, so there's treatment centers that are, that small treatment centers trying to open up and, Mm -hmm. you know, they hire me to come down and to talk, talk to me. I said, I know, I was telling my husband not too long ago, I know I've arrived, 
<laughs> when someone actually pays me just to listen to me talk. Yes. <laughs> and and let's be clear, there's no payment in this super in this podcast, unfortunately. <laughs> but we that's exactly you have this is the seasoned. And it's yes, the seasoned RD, but it's it's how we all come into this field season. It's how we stay seasoned, and it's how when we are well seasoned, that people will pay you to come in and talk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Let's lean on each other and learn from each other, so we can grow together as professionals in this field of eating disorders. If you want to connect with me for supervision or membership with monthly content please find me at bethharrell.com slash professionals.